impossible to comprehend its tax certainty. That phrase alone raises a lot of questions, but one thing's for sure, it's what we're talking about today. Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Transfer Pricing Podcast, and have we got a special episode in store for you. Today, we'll be talking about that elusive slip through your multinational fingers illusion known as tax certainty. What's it about? How do you get it? Can you even get it? And most importantly, what steps will bring you closer to it? That, of course, is where our guest comes in, Dr. Ahim Pross, the head of the International Cooperation and Tax Administration Division at the OECD. He, along with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist and podcast rock star Mimi Song, will discuss some of the latest issues regarding the eyebrow-raising concept from both a multinational's point of view and a tax administration's point of view. And we're going to take a look at the OECD's answer to tax certainty, the International Compliance Assurance Program. So welcome, Dr. Pross. As you can tell, there are so many angles to dive into because, let's face it, the problem with not having tax certainty is... It means you have tax uncertainty. And that's bad news for multinationals and tax administrations, too. When tax offices give off that uncertainty air, then multinationals start reconsidering where to invest. So we can say one thing with certainty, we're all better off on the same page. How do we get there? We're going to tackle that right after we take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp as you may know you can earn cpe credits just from listening to the fiona show i mean how great is that we're planting two cpe code words in this podcast listen for them and send them to the fiona show at xbs.ai that's all one word and we'll email you your certificate. It's that easy. Well, Dr. Prost is another big get for us on the Fiona Show. I mean, he's quite a busy guy. He's head of the International Cooperation and Tax Administration Division within the OECD's Center for Tax Policy and Administration. And as you'd expect, with a lofty title comes lofty responsibilities. Dr. Prost works on developing the OECD's reporting standards. Yes, you can thank him for all that paperwork you have to do every year. He has put into BEPS action terms contributes to the OECD's work on the digital economy and on tax administration and crimes. Of course, his interest in tax began long before the OECD. A lawyer himself, Dr. Prost, worked in the tax department for an international law firm, dividing his time between offices in Washington, D.C., Paris, and London. He also worked as an assistant at the Munich University's Research Center for Foreign and International Tax and Financial Law. He holds a PhD in international taxation, and well, I think you can see he has more than enough experience to be here, and certainly we're thrilled to have him. And with that, I'm going to hand over the mic to Mimi Song, all right. Well, well, thank you for joining us. You know, we're really excited to have you both here. So before we actually get started into the topic, can we learn a little bit about both of you? I'll start with Ahim. How did you get into tax or transfer pricing? Can you give us a little bit of background here? Um, yeah. I mean, I started out um, thinking about being an academic and then people told me that that wasn't such a great idea and I should go out in the wonderful world of tax. And so I started out early on at the OECD and then transitioned over to a US law firm. So I was based in Washington, DC, and then I was based in Paris and then in London. 
And so that took me to tax uh, my early affiliation with the International Fiscal Association and from having done loads of tax, especially on foreign tax credits, CFC and other things for U.S. multinationals and European groups and Asian groups. I then transitioned into the OECD, um, where I did a whole host of things from harmful tax, exchange of information, to aggressive tax planning, um, to various pillars of the digital agenda, uh, and also CBC, um, dispute resolution, Action 14, Action 13. So it's been a long journey through transfer pricing, transfer pricing documentation, many other things, hybrids, interest limitations, the whole world, the journey of international tax. Yeah, that's that's exciting, actually. I, I never knew when I entered into the world of transfer pricing, I never knew it would get as exciting as it is today, to be to be very frank, right? There's always two things uh, that were certain in life, and that was death and taxes, or as the expression goes, right? So... <laughs> OECD, I mean, we do have a very varied um, background in terms of the people. I mean, many of us, like myself, actually did start in the private sector. I mean, Mark, I mean, you also had a very varied career before you came to the OECD, maybe just started. Yeah. yeah um, well, I'm from the UK, and the first 12 years of my career were in the private sector, mainly in, um, in accountancy and advisory firms, and then a few years spent um, in the financial services sector working for banks mainly in the um, tax efficiency, tax planning areas. Um, but then over time, um, I began to find more of an interest in the policy side for tax. And so for, from 2008, I spent three years with the UK Tax Authority, HMRC, as a policy advisor specialised in the financial services sector. Um, and then I met Akim through my work at HMRC uh, while he was at the OECD. And in 2011, I came on um, as a member of his team, and since then, I've had responsibility for quite a range of areas, from uh, combating tax crime through to harmful tax practices. Um, I led the work as part of the BEPS project on interest deductibility, and now I've got responsibility for country-by-country um, -country reporting um, the elements of transfer pricing documentation um, and anything in the broad risk assessment area, which is where... Um, ICAP comes in. So um, I feel that I've moved quite a long way from when I started off doing my accountancy exams, but um, <laughs> in So last but not least, uh, what mistakes do you see multinationals making all the time? Um, you know, there's, there's a question of mistakes and this, you know, sort of it's a loaded term. So, so if you see, you know, sort of challenges that, that sort of happen, you know, we've seen over time, and I guess this takes us back to the early days of BAPS and maybe the genesis of BAPS, I mean, we see some tax planning that in some sense is sort of the best and the worst at the same time. In some sense, it's the best because it sort of technically actually works. It ticks all the boxes. So really clever lawyers have put some of this stuff together, and maybe that was Mark in his previous capacity. Um, but it's also in some sense the worst because it will be known to tax administration and ultimately to tax policymakers and to the larger international community. And given how sensitive and how important and how political tax has become, it's a topic for society with many things that are taxed. It's fairness, it's the level playing field, the financial crisis, it's everybody chips in. And in that sort of context, having that tax planning that technically may comply with the rules, but gets you to a result where the man on the street, everybody kind of says, well, it cannot be true, it's just a kick in the shin of tax policymakers. So in some sense, where I would sit is like, don't be surprised if your tax planning is too good to be true. It's probably <laughs> not going to last. Even yeah. if legally speaking at the time you do it, it technically works. So, so in some sense, what we were missing, I guess, at the time is a bit like the, sort of the board and people stepping back and kind of looking at that and saying like, okay, well, you tick the box on two little lie and one little lie. But the result is something really good for earnings right now, but it's going to come to haunt us. And, you know, sort of it's that sort of short term gain, long term pain type thing. And many of the, in that sort of, some of those things started. So I think that in some sense is probably a strategic mistake that, that some people have done, in addition to just having taken some of the tax planning, I guess, too far in an environment that wasn't going to tolerate that. 
and there's a lot of debate about tax on the boardroom and many things. And, and you know, some of the things also are things that led to the BEPS project. Um, that, you know, as we said, it's a policy project. So we're not saying, you know, tax planning is bad and corporates are bad, but you just see how, as a tax person, I think you just need to have a much broader perspective on the significance of what you're doing in the tax space than being too focused on, you know, is it too little lie and one lie. I think that's many other things I could say, but that's certainly one that comes to mind. Right. And I actually do think that is a great segue into the topic that we're going to be talking about today, which is this idea of tax certainty, right? And so when a transfer pricing professional or when a multinational talks about tax certainty, what is that company really trying to achieve with this concept of tax certainty? I think there's there's probably two dimensions to this, and they're sort of linked, but they're different. And so it's useful to sort of separate them out. I mean, one is sort of the tax policy part. You know, if you're like a U.S. multinational, then you just had tax reform. <laughs> and, and, and that was huge. And then you had tax reform, but you didn't yet have the guidance. So you didn't know what the guidance were going to be. The guidance has finally come. Right. You saw BEPS emerging. You see tax reforms in a whole bunch of other countries. Guidance is late. So it's constant flux. And so, so there's one element of tax certainty because the landscape, the rules are evolving and they're probably evolving much faster than in the past, maybe like everything else. There's relatively little you can do, but you can stay attuned of the development. So, so you kind of see what's coming, you can anticipate. And you know, that's why it's important if you're a you know, taxpayer that you have people, either your own or others, that kind of tell you what's likely to happen in the future. You can input in the development of it, you know, in consultations at OECD and the countries. So there's one uncertainty thing there you need to keep an eye on, like how is the world changing? And then perhaps more closer to home is that question about, well, how certain are the rules that we have today? So do I have certainty when I make an acquisition and I assume that that is going to be the treatment and I kind of do the price that I'm bidding and the earnings per share and I do all these calculations, how certain am I that the tax treatment is going to be the tax treatment that I think it is? And there is real issues. You know, we know that. We, we look at, for instance, the map statistics. So we keep statistics. Mm -hmm. We release them on Monday that show us how many disagreements do we have between tax authorities and, and, and that then go to map. And we, we have a vast number, inventory, you know, new map requests are up. So there's a significant level of disagreement, which means that if you make a transfer pricing assumption, then, you know, there is a fair chance that maybe those two countries won't agree. So one of the things is like, what is my level of certainty with respect to the implementation of my transfer pricing policy and, and what's the likelihood that this will be agreed by, by tax administration in a multilateral context, because ultimately both need to agree. So that's a risk. You want to sort of address some of that, you know, so, you know, you may want to go for an APA. Not everybody has them. You know, we know that there is an issue about, you know, APA, technically it's advanced pricing agreements. Very often there isn't anything advanced about them, as you know, like, you know, sort of you wonder, like, where's the A gone in APA? Some of them are costly. Multilateral is really what you want. So there's a lot of issues that as a director of a operating business where a lot of intercompany transaction happens because that's just the commercial reality, having a higher level of certainty on those transactions, I think that's a significant concern. And it's a concern that also if you have to build reserves, it hits earnings. And so, so it has a wider implication on the company. Right. And, and, and Mark, I might ask you, if you put your tax administration hat on for a second, you know, from that perspective, what are your challenges with respect to providing taxpayers a certain level of tax certainty, right? Because I don't think as a policymaker, your intention was to create a, a convoluted situation where you, you don't, you want taxpayers to fret about their tax positions, right? The policy environment is not created with the intention of deliberately having a high level of uncertainty. Sometimes I should qualify this because sometimes policymakers do make a decision to create a certain element of vagueness because they're afraid that if we have extremely bright lines, taxpayers will plan all the way to the bright line. And so sometimes there's something that they do to kind of stop pushing it all the way. But by and large, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's no policy intention of creating uncertainty. Um, 
you know, from a tax administration's point of view, you know, there is, of course, part of business needs to play in being able to address this. So, you know, sometimes we hear, you know, are they fully open? Are they putting all the information on the table to allow us to be reasonable? And this is a relationship matter. It goes both ways, but it also comes from business. Is business open enough with the tax administration so the tax administration is fully informed and comes to the right conclusions, having confidence that they've been provided with all of the information? We do see aggressive tax planning. We see very aggressive schemes. We still see a bit of like this cat-mouse game sometimes. I ask a question, you try to answer it very narrowly, so, so we don't have that. So, so there's also, there's, there's sort of both sides here. So you can see that from a tax administration perspective, there's things that they can do, but there's also things that business would need to do for tax administrations to be able to do that. Um, and that's culture on both sides, I think, very important. Um, as well as, you know, sort of, you know, I guess linked to it, behavioral implications um, that are that are very important in the space. Mark, any thoughts you want to add to that? No, no, I will be vacuum to comment. That's okay. <laughs> no problem. So, uh, you know, what about digitalization, right? And, and this this whole idea, I know there's there's a whole section and a whole project of Working Party that's working now on the concept of this digital economy. And, you know, the, the, what are the challenges that you guys are facing with respect to trying to provide a certain level of tax certainty with this new digital economy? Yeah. I mean, excellent question. I mean, there's first of all the thing that, you know, it's a new thing. Like we need to get a deal, at least the outlines, you know, by the end of the year. We said that and we're working hard to get there. Um, but it will be a new thing, speaking sort of untechnically. And any time you have change, you have elements that people are not familiar with, that creates uncertainty just because we don't know it. Um, so that's one level. At the same time, um, it is very, from a significant number of stakeholders in the discussion, in particular, but not only from the U.S. perspective, that any solution that we agree on needs to come with a higher level of tax certainty than what we have today. And that not only for the new element, because the new element is not going to replace the whole transfer pricing system that we have, it's going to supplement it, but also with, re with respect to the existing landscape. And so tax certainty needs to be a very important component of any solution that is possible. Now, that is not going to be able to take away from the fact that there will be some uncertainty simply because it's new, because it is new, and that creates that sort of one dimension. But there's elements of tech certainty that we will need to introduce to that package to come to a deal, essentially. So if you think about what those things could be, and this is you know, sort of in some sense a segue into ICAP, we need to have a tax policy solution that can actually be done by tax administration so we don't end up with like a great plan, tax policy success that turns into a tax administration disaster. That means there will have to be more real-time cooperation. I think there will have to be more coordinated risk assessment to come to a multilateral view to reduce uncertainty for taxpayers and give them more certainty in this space where especially if you look at the digital but also the other companies you know their sales are from all over the world they have a presence in many many countries and anything we do in this sort of broad digital space may impact a large number of countries and we certainly couldn't have a situation where if there is 100 countries involved and we have one audit adjustment, it affects the other 99 five years later when this audit happens. So there's a lot of that things I think that we will need to think through. There's also an ongoing discussion on mandatory binding arbitration, which we as OECD Secretariat have been promoting for a while, but there's reservations on, on that you know, from mm -hmm. some important countries. And so there's a question of, of what to do and that's, I think there's, there's many of those tools that we need to think about to have sort of an effective dispute resolution process. Because one of the things that's very clear on the digital project under both of those pillars is that 
while you know it will need to address the allocation of income and while there may be changes in the allocation of income and guilty like ideas around the pillar two everybody has agreed that none of this can result in double taxation or in taxation in excess of the economic profit so to sort of sort of sum it up i think the enhanced tax certainty will need to be a key component of that package which is also, I think, very important for business as a key stakeholder community. But of course, what it cannot do, it cannot take away from the fact that when you're doing something new, that just creates a level of uncertainty because you don't yet know what it is and you haven't done it. Right, right. And, and you know, I, before we go into the details of the ICAP program, really a step towards creating an environment of more certainty is the concept of absolute tax certainty actually attainable? <laughs> we would love to, but I think <laughs> we, <laughs> we would laugh, exactly. That would be fantastic. But I mean, maybe as you were saying in the beginning, I mean, there's two certainty, death and taxes. And, and so maybe that is a certainty, but sort of the absolute certainty is almost impossible. You know, you can influence it as a tax administration, you can influence it as a taxpayer, you can get higher levels of certainty, and there is a lot that we can do for a lot of taxpayers um, to get them into a much better space, which also will impact, you know, whether or not they have to do reserves, whether there's an implication on earnings. I don't think we're going to get to like an absolute certainty anytime soon. I, I hope to be incorrect on this one. I, I'd love to be incorrect on this one, but I don't think that is really realistic. But we can go from levels of tax certainty as we did in the work we did for the G20 with the IMF. We did a big study on tax certainty, the drivers of tax uncertainty and what could be done. And a lot of this has now been taken up by the Forum on Tax Administration that brings together the OECD and the G20 heads of tax administrations. We've launched ICAP for a reason. It wasn't sort of just there was a narrative to move in the space, and we can talk about in a minute about you know what were the origins of that. We're now doing work on APAs, on maps, on better risk assessment, and also you know to the extent possible to sort of get as much guidance out to taxpayers of what and what not tax administrations will accept so that if they want to, they can plan with a relatively low level of risk um, into a higher level of certainty. So, you know, it's a holistic agenda. It, it's not going to be absolute, but if I venture a guess, we can improve substantially from where we are today. And, you know, that's one of the things that tax certainty on Monday will sort of showcase what some of the things could be, where we're going in the future, and what sort of ideas we have. Okay. Well, in... in you know, along those lines, then let's let's talk about the ICAP program. So the International Compliance Assurance Program. Tell us a little bit about that program. What was the genesis? What's the intention? What what are you hoping to achieve? Absolutely. I mean, the the genesis in some sense was country by country reporting. So we had agreed as part of the BEPS action plan that there would be a global minimum standard that would require every multinational enterprise above a 750 million euro gross revenue threshold to provide a certain level of information on key metrics by country and that that would then be exchanged with all the countries or with the tax authorities of the countries where that m and &E has operations, subsidiary or branch. So that was done and we were working on the details of the implementation, and we were also working with tax administrations and businesses on the effective use of that information. So, you know, now we're implementing the system, the information is going to come. How are we going to effectively use it? And I remember we had a meeting and we talked to a couple of MEs, and one of their tax directors said, Look, in this CBC reporting template, there is a free text possibility where I can write in, you know, if you see this in my CBC file, don't think it's that because it's actually something else. The CBC itself, if you look at it in isolation, and that will resonate with many tax directors, you may sometimes not recognize your own company because you actually, you, you think you know, but then there's another reason, and so you don't know. And so 
there is a risk that you would jump to wrong conclusions if you just looked at the CBC, which is why we've always said use it for high-level risk assessment, and that is sort of the legal requirement that you can only use it for high-level risk assessment, not something else, because in and by itself, it may just set you off the wrong course. But then one company said, well, listen, you know, we're being told by many of our advisors in that treat tax box because we don't know where that goes and maybe that causes even more misunderstandings. But then she said, but, and the but was an important but, she said, but if there was a trusted space where we could walk you through the CBC, what it means and what it doesn't mean and the local file and the master file and our transfer pricing documentation and to tell you the story about what it is where we do and why we do it, and if we could have that conversation with several of the tax administrations at the same time, we'd be very, very interested. Because what we don't want to do is to have to meet with you separately and independently every country where we operate and have the same conversation with you separately. Much better to have this conversation multilaterally. And, and tax administrators, was sort of a light bulb moment, said, look, that's actually a very interesting concept. Because ultimately, we see that there is much pipeline that maybe shouldn't be there. We need to think about resource implications. We also buy the idea that prevention is better than cure. So if we can get together early on in the risk assessment process with a bunch of tax administrations and the taxpayer, and the taxpayer walks us through so that when we get the information, we understand the information, then this helps us tremendously also from a risk assessment perspective. Because if we then all agree that this, in fact, is low risk, and if we're not sure whether it's low risk, we can ask a question, then we can take that issue off the table, which allows us to focus on our resources on the sorts of things that are actually risks and where we need to sort of intervene and focus more of those risks. So, so that was sort of the meeting of the minds. And, you know, there were other aspects that helped there that, you know, people thought, well, we've had cooperative compliance in many countries. So if there is additional information, if there is initial information provided by the M&E and we're in a multilateral process, why wouldn't we then give you some form of early certainty and talk about, you know, what the precise certainty of ICAB is? I think we also at a tax administration level, not to underestimate the complexity of this, we are now in the level of cooperation amongst tax administrations where you can actually think about having a real-time multilateral process involving a real-time risk assessment with the taxpayer. You know, there's language questions, there's timing questions. I mean, jokingly, you know, we even had a situation, which is rare if you think about it, where some of the taxpayers said, can we slow down a little bit because the tax administrations were too responsive, which is not a very frequent <laughs> criticism. <laughs> Usually not so, what you hear, right? <laughs> exactly. And so we said, well, that makes a lot of sense to us. It's good for tax administration, focuses resources, doesn't set them off on a tangent like false positives where there actually isn't anything, allows the taxpayer to voluntarily come into the program, basically open up and say, like, here's what I'm doing, look at it, let's have a conversation. It's an adult relationship with the taxpayer benefit being, you know, getting a relatively fast or much faster, we're talking like six months level certainty, even if it's not legal certainty, sort of de facto certainty. And it's a win for tax administrations because they're also better able to streamline their resources in terms of, you know, where to go and where not to go. And, you know, right. somewhere, and perhaps sort of the last point, and I stop, there's also a sense that, you know, BEPS was imposed, including country-by-country country reporting, on all MEs. There was no distinction, did you engage in aggressive tax planning? It's just a size. You know, size does not mean you're higher risk, you're lower risk, you're just bigger. And in some sense, it was sort of this thinking, well, if we're all getting the CBC information, for an M&E that wants to come forward, use we now all have, and basically walk us through, I mean, sometimes we describe the sort of the sunny side of BEPS, then, you know, if you're a low to medium risk taxpayers, maybe that CBC and that same transfer prices, same documentation, same processes, provides an opportunity for a taxpayer to get earlier certainty. And isn't that a good thing that sort of grows out of it for taxpayers that are ready to be transparent? Sure, sure. And and there's ICAP versus ICAP 2.0. What what are the differences here between the two programs? Sure. 
I mean, ICAP, then Mark, I'll invite you in a minute to talk about that maybe in terms of somewhat more detail. I think when we did ICAP, it was the first pilot. So we got together, nobody had ever done it. We had these sort of original ideas, which I've explained about what we were trying to do with these drivers. We talked to tax administrations, sort of the founding members, the founding eight, you know, sort of what sorts. They had a couple of businesses. We brought in some businesses. We talked to BIAC, the Business and Industry Advisory Committee. How should we design it? But sort of nobody had done it. And so then we did the pilot and companies came in. So very grateful for some of the companies that came in. So the first pilot, you know, sort of there were a lot of businesses that like, great program, love the direction of travel, but could somebody please be first and then tell me how it was. And if your experience is good, I'm going to be second. So companies such as they've publicly outed them, like Procter & Gamble was one of the pioneers and we're really grateful for their contribution and their willingness to be in this and to work on this direction that they and we share is the right direction. Um, and so, so then we learned when we went through about what to do and how to do it better. I think ICAP2 is like a better formula of our original products. I think we've changed documentation requirements to make them more targeted. We moved some of the resource intensive elements. We adapted some of the steps. I think we made it sort of smoother running, we think, but maybe, maybe Mark, I mean, you've been in there really from day one in terms of ICAP and an ICAP too. What would you think are some of the, the, the key changes and how they're different? Sure. Um, I think, as Akim said, I mean, when we sat around the first ICAP pilot, I mean, this was a real pilot. It was something that we'd never done before, and so we designed it based on what we thought would work as the most effective process, uh, but it was certainly something that needed to be tested. Um, and one of the things which we felt would be most beneficial originally in terms of an efficient and effective process would be to have something that was very clearly scripted in terms of when meetings had to happen, when phone calls had to happen. So everybody would be on the same page and hopefully things would be um, the most efficient way possible. So one of the things that we learned when we spoke with the tax administrations and also with the MNEs that were in the first pilot was that while that it seems to be a good principle, in practice, the MNEs who were in ICAT 1 were very different, and their risk assessments needed to take into account those differences. And so I think one of the main points that has changed in ICAP 2.0 is while we maintain the need for everybody to understand what will happen and at what stage, at an early part of the ICAP process, there'll be conversations held between an MNE and the tax administration in its parent jurisdiction, we refer to that as the lead tax administration, to adapt the process and the timeframes to what the tax administrations and the particular um, MNE needs. So hopefully for ICAP 2.0, we should see something which is more flexible and also uh, smoother and should reach... Um, should lead to tax administration being able to give uh, comfort at, uh, at a much earlier stage while ensuring that everybody understands exactly what's going on. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Right. Yeah. So I was actually. You know, I under, I understand that ICAP program is a voluntary program, right? But I also, if I'm not mistaken, um, certain multinationals were invited to participate in the program. Is that right? And what type of multinationals, or can any multinational really volunteer for it at any point in time? Or is this 
based on invitation only at this point? Well, I think in principle, I mean, for the first pilot, I think, sorry, start again. For the first pilot, because um, this had never been done before, um, in order to bring MEs within the program, there was an element of um, encouraging MEs to participate within a trial. And as Akim has said, um, a lot of MEs were hesitant about coming into something which had never been done before. Uh, and so I think for the first pilot, there was certainly an element of um, conversations between tax administrations and MEs to understand who would be prepared to try something new and innovative that while we hope will give benefits around you know, resource efficiencies and so on, we certainly can't guarantee that for the first time it ever happened. And we're very grateful to the MEs um, who volunteered uh, for the pilot and, and have provided their learnings that have gone into ICAP 2.0. In terms of suitability of um, ICAP for an MNE, in principle, it's certainly open to any MNEs that are above uh, the CBC reporting threshold. I mean, there'll be some factors which will lead some MNEs to be more or less suitable. For example, for ICAP 2.0, we have 18 tax administrations participating in the program, and ICAP will lend itself to the MEs where a large amount, a significant amount of their global footprint is in, um, in jurisdictions that are participating, um, also where their parent um, is in a jurisdiction that's participating, so they can lead uh, that risk assessment process. Um, it probably also lends itself to um, MEs that can benefit from the type of legal certainty um, that ICAP provides, the type of certainty ICAP provides. If an ME already has quite a comprehensive APA network across the jurisdictions where um, ICAP um, is, 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 is active, then it may be that they already have an appropriate level um, of comfort. Um, I think what ICAP, the benefit that ICAP brings is that if an ME has particular transactions that require the legal certainty that an APA provides and that they're able and willing to go through what can be, as Akim's mentioned, um, a relatively um, long bilateral process to get certainty over a single transaction in one or two jurisdictions. ICAP can operate alongside that and provide a much broader level of certainty. It doesn't have the, the legal certainty that comes with a signed and sealed APA, but it covers all of um, an M&E's transfer pricing risks in a much larger uh, number of jurisdictions. It varies from M&E to M&E, but typically we would see um, six to eight uh, tax administrations working on a particular um, M&E's risk assessment. And they'll be giving comfort on all of the transfer pricing risks uh, that they see. Um, that is, Given the time frame we're working to is around six to nine months, that's hopefully a much more efficient process than uh, most MEs have experienced who are going down the APA route. Right. APAs typically take, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, several years in, in some situations. I, I know that tax administrations have worked tirelessly to try to increase uh, or reduce that time, time frame. But, and so now this ICAP program, it, it's much faster. Um, it provides comfort, to your point. But it doesn't legally guarantee tax certainty in any way. And I'm curious, it's just, you know, bringing in all these tax administrations, I understand that nobody, this, this is not legally binding, that they have to guarantee tax certainty. Is there, is that level of certainty just unachievable? Or is it just too much to get everyone to agree upon? Like, how... How much comfort does it really provide to the taxpayer? And, and perhaps, you know, how, how do we define comfort in this context, right? It effectively, more or less, either explicitly or sort of broadly, every tax administration needs to do risk assessment. They can't audit everything. We have some tax administrations where you would think they always try to audit absolutely everything, but they realize that, you know, the, their resource implications are beyond their capabilities. And so, so we're in this risk assessment space. And so, you know, in some sense, ICAP says, well, you're doing the risk assessment, I'm doing the risk assessment in areas of transfer pricing and PE. 
we now have the same risk assessment documentation in the same schema in the form format. We get it at the same time, and we're supposed to have the same transfer pricing. So it makes a lot of sense for us as tax administration to do it together, not least of which is because if we otherwise disagree, then we have to go to MAP five years later. It's even more resources at a time when we don't even understand the transaction. Time has moved on, and the taxpayer doesn't want it. And so you're in this space. Now, if you domestically make this decision on risk assessment, you kind of look at the taxpayer and their transfer pricing, and you will have some metric on the basis of what you determine whether you're going to look at this or not. Now, once you've decided not to look at that, so you, know, you will not deploy compliance resource, in the domestic space, some countries actually tell you, like, we've gone through the risk assessment, we think a low risk, and so by and large, that's fine. That is a different cultural context, of course, where some countries may be more comfortable with these types of approaches and we have more legalistic countries or civil law, common law. There's also like a cultural overlay. But deep down, everybody does a risk assessment process and then comes to a conclusion that if the risk assessment process was such that this risk is low risk, then you're not going to apply compliance resource to that risk. So we've taken this to the international space and said, well, if we've done this all at the same time and we all conclude that actually this company in the transaction between two countries that are covered by ICAP, and as Mark says, that's just one, so it's a broader scope than an APA, that we do not see a basis um, to apply compliance resource. This is the idea around the letter that you get. The letter you get if you're an ICAP participant from each one of the participating jurisdictions in your intervention effectively is you know, drafted differently in accordance with the different rules and procedures and the drafting styles. But the principle behind it is if the process has been successful, the tax administration tells you that you're unlikely to deploy compliance uh, resources meaning de facto, and Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but de facto it means we have no intention to argue, um, that then once you've done this with a whole bunch of other jurisdictions, that importantly would be if you changed your mind, the other ones that would have to make an adjustment, very practically speaking, you're very unlikely then to get audited. In fact, I think we've had examples, because it was teething issues, where we had gone through it, where a sex tax taxpayer had been successful, had gotten the outcome letters. And then I think because the auditing department was somewhere else, they sort of send them a letter saying, let's initiate an audit. The taxpayer said, now, wait a minute, like I've just gone through the ICAP. A couple of calls were made. And then in some sense, they said, never mind. And they withdrew the audit notice. So we've tested it sort of in reality. And the, the, the outcome was that there's a coordination issue because it's new. But if you think about it also, if you think a tax administration, like just like any other organization, are you going to deploy resources to open up a case that you have already looked at together with eight tax administrations together and concluded it's low risk? I think that is a bit maybe sort of the context within which we actually find, and the taxpayers in there so far find, that while... We don't sign on the dotted line in terms of the lawyers get in and say, here's an iron guarantee, that de facto, you get a very meaningful level of comfort if you understand the dynamics, the resource limitation of tax administration, what it would mean if they open it, because the other country that looked at it together with you was on the other side. So there's many, I think, implications and dynamics in this process that give you, I would think, a relatively high level of comfort on the tax certainty aspect. And you know, that's also one of the, the reasons why we're able to do it so much faster. If you wanted countries to sign up on the dotted line, they would probably request a whole host of more documentation that you would have to review, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, okay. I think, an, another element in this. But I don't know, Mark, whether you have deeper thoughts on that. No, I, I think that's exactly right. In terms of the ability of the tax administrations to provide legal comfort, you know, a lot of them have APA programs established under their treaties. If you require that level of comfort, then um, that's the, the process that, that needs to go through. And uh, for, for legal reasons, they are often unable to give a guarantee of legal certainty. But I think given the level of work that's been done um, and the multilateral conversations that have been had, then in order to be able to write a letter saying we do not anticipate to um, need to apply any more resources or have any more inquiries for 
uh, given periods I think is, a, is still an important level of, of comfort. Um, one element that perhaps we haven't mentioned yet, but within ICAP 2.0, uh, we've also introduced um, a specific issue resolution uh, process. So while the, the, the various tax administrations are conducting their risk assessments, hopefully working together and through conversations with each other, they'll be able to come to a common view that the M&E is low risk. But in the event that there is something where tax administrations have a different view, because the multilateral conversations are happening early at the risk assessment stage and with the MNE, it has sometimes been able for uh, tax administrations to, to deal with those issues up front that otherwise would have ended up in order and potentially down the line in MAP. So while you know, there's no, um, no kind of guarantee in, 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 as such, but by having these conversations at an earlier stage, I think there have been MNEs that have been able to feel that they are issues that would have come up are being resolved so much earlier. And again, that just adds to, 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 to the certainty that, that they're able to achieve. That's great. It, it sounds like the ICAP program is extremely successful, you know, at least these first two iterations, and it's working out quite well. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering where I sign up, right? So along those lines... <laughs> What documentation does an M&E who wants to enter the program be prepared to provide? So for an M&E who is looking to come into ICAP, we have the ICAP handbook available on the OECD website, and that lists out um, four tiers of documentation or four stages at which documentation is provided. But the overall intention is to keep the documentation as light as possible, but by being realistic about what tax administrations need to conduct their risk assessment. So initially, for MNEs who are looking to come within the program, we just ask for very basic, high-level information about what kind of transactions um, they have within the group that would pose um, a transfer pricing risk to the participating um, tax administrations. And this is basically filling out um, an Excel spreadsheet with the various countries where the group has operations. And this forms the basis for uh, the initial conversations with the tax administrations about whether the M&E is suitable, which tax administrations would participate, and defines the scope of their risk assessment. The assumption in the first place is that all of an M&E's transfer pricing risk will be covered by an ICAP risk assessment, but if there are particular issues such as there's already an APA in place, or if an MNE's footprint in a particular jurisdiction is very small, then it may be that the MNE and the tax administrations feel that that um, is not something that should be within, within scope. When we move on to the risk assessment itself, that is triggered by um, a documentation package being delivered by um, the MNE. Um, and this is one of the key elements of ICAP is that all of the tax administrations are working from a common documentation set. So they'll be running their own mm. risk assessment tools, but over common information. But this is mainly, or this is largely stuff which an ME should already have available. So it's a copy of their master file. It would be copies of local files mm -hmm. um, in the jurisdictions uh, participating in the program. It would be a copy of their value chain. Um, a, a group structure showing the different entities uh, that are participating, um, so that are in uh, the jurisdictions of the participating tax administrations. And then one thing which we're introducing for ICAP 2.0 is based on our experience in the first pilot. We're in the process of developing um, a, a self-assessment template whereby the MNE can look at their CBC report and certain common indicators of potential risk um, will be um, highlighted in this self-assessment. So the, the ME will be able to see how their CBC report could be read by a tax administration and will be given the opportunity up front to provide some clarity or explanation about what it is about their value chain, what it is about their structure that leads to these particular features within their CBC report. So it, rather than waiting down the line for questions, the ME um, is prompted to provide um, some upfront uh, clarity and explanations. But the intention is that broadly this is the kind of documentation that an ME 
will either already produce, they'll already have their local files, they'll already have their master files, or should be information that they have uh, readily available, such as information on their, their value chain. Wow, okay. So, so from a process perspective, the m and submits all this, uh, submits the application and um, provides this documentation that you had discussed, Mark, and then it goes into a risk assessment stage. And finally, from an outcome perspective, is what 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 happens from an outcome perspective? Like, what's the, does do they get a letter? They they do get a letter um, at the end of the process. I mean, there's interaction. So one of the things that at least taxpayers tell us they like about the process, it's not a black box. It's not like a bunch of tax administration coming together doing a thing and then you're being told or not what happened. So it's a very interactive process with a lot of engagement, a lot of back and forth, and the lead tax administration is sort of the interface for the most part with the taxpayer. So we coordinate requests, they go back, sort of manage the process also sort of on behalf of uh, the, the M&E that's in it. Um, as Mark has said, there's sort of an element of, you know, sort of, I wouldn't call it dispute resolution, but what do you call it, Mark? The, the issue resolution. It's issue resolution, exactly. So if people think I kind of feel comfortable with this, but this particular thing, I, I can't really get myself to say it's low risk because it's not in the range, it gives the taxpayer a choice. It gives the taxpayer the choice to say, like, okay, well, either I, I want to sort of continue with this position, which may perfectly be legitimate, but then tax administrations consider that particular issue to be higher risk, and that may require some other form, or it gives the taxpayer the possibility saying, well, in the trade-off here, well, actually, I'd rather be low risk. I'll amend that range, and that has happened, and sort of drop and, and into a lower risk category, as a result of which these tax administrations say, well, even on a risk assessment basis, without having gone into every contract and sort of gone through the weeds and checked everything, I am comfortable that I do not need to deploy further compliance resource, which then results in a letter being issued, which is on behalf of all the participating tax administration, an individual letter, but they come together and they're coordinated and shared, so there's no surprises here, that effectively then says, if it's all gone according to plan, that we're unlikely to deploy compliance resources, read, we're unlikely to audit that issue, which comes at the same time on the covered transactions, and importantly, from like both or three sides to this transaction. So you actually have certainty, which you sort of don't have if only one of the two signs off and any other changes of mind. So that letter comes out. So there is an outcome letter. You're being informed throughout the process by your lead tax administration. And then there's a letter from all of those um, that have participated. Um, that tells you where they are and ideally tells you that, you know, on the covered uh, transactions, what's, what's in ICAP, you're considered low risk and they're unlikely to deploy compliance resource. One thing maybe perhaps um, to mention, so it doesn't look like purely a promotional video for ICAP, which of course it is, <laughs> um, it, it is a significant resource commitment on the part of ta tax administrations, yeah. but also taxpayers. So you got to be ready to engage. So that, that is an upfront investment that you're making, and that needs to be said. As Mark has said, we tried to sort of make it more targeted. That was some of the feedback from the first round companies that, you know, could we reduce some of their change, some of the documentation requirements. We've done that. But I think, Mark, you can probably comment on this. But it's still a, it, it's an investment that you make as a company. That's, you know, we need to be upfront about that. Right, right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think there are tremendous amounts of benefits from the ICAP program. And uh, although you're, it's not a promotional video for the ICAP program, I definitely think the benefits are, are clearly uh, transparent, right? And I'm wondering, though, ICAP program, is it limited to the to those 18 jurisdictions that are participating? So an M&E has to be headquartered in that particular jurisdiction where, uh, you know, that participates in the ICAP program, or does it go beyond that? I mean, you know, by and large, and Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, for the most part, yes. So, you know, it's for those that are headquartered in one of the participating jurisdictions. That would then still allow, you know, transactions with third countries to be covered at least once. Um, I think there's an exception, and Mark can, I guess, speak on that in, in more detail, where, you know, you're headquartered somewhere else, but, but effectively, you know, a very, very significant part of your business is thrown through an entity in your group that is itself headquartered within the ICAP participating countries. But maybe, Mark, you can compliment. No, that's, that's right. Um, 
I mean, the, the principle, I think, what will be the case in the, the significant majority of MEs is we need, in order for the risk assessment to be effectively coordinated by the lead tax administration, it's much easier if they are located where the group is headquartered. Uh, you know, they have the relationships with the appropriate senior members of staff at the MNE. They probably have a much uh, broader and, and deeper knowledge of the MNE's activities. And in general, they would be the correct uh, tax administration to be able to, um, to take a lead and to coordinate and liaise with the different tax administrations in the MNE. There is scope either where um, an MNE is headquartered in a different jurisdiction. Um, or indeed it's headquartered in one of these 18, but because of the number of um, MNEs that a particular uh, tax administration um, is leading on, um, it doesn't feel able to participate in, 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 in all of them. Where another tax administration, if there is a very significant presence um, from the MNE in their jurisdiction, so they are able to, uh, to take that role as, and lead and coordinate the risk assessment for them to act as lead. But we do um, emphasize in those cases that the MNE, the MNE's real parent who's located in a different jurisdiction, uh, would, we would look for them to give assurance that they will still engage with um, the lead tax administration fully and transparently, even though uh, they're located in, in a different jurisdiction, just to make sure that the risk assessments can be um, as thorough and robust and therefore able to give the certainty that the MNE desires. Right. And... and you know, I, I'm sure there are target MEs that are good candidates for the ICAP program. And I actually had one of my clients who applied and, and I think wasn't um, accepted into the program. Is there anything that you guys are looking for in, in terms of, you know, accepting into the program that could create a situation or a red flag that says we can't, um, we can't look at this m and we're, we're not going to get, you know, it's not going to be a good quality, good candidate for the ICAP? We're still like ICAP 2.0 is still not a fully fleshed out program. It, in some sense, it's like a, a second pilot. And so we're still I'm sort of learning. You know, we not have every country that we would like to have in ICAP. We're still mm-hmm. making improvements. We try to understand. We find our. So in, in, in that period, it, it's the individual tax administration, in some sense, if you wish, that are the gatekeepers. So the tax administration needs to be comfortable with the taxpayers as they come in. We're still like in relatively small numbers of taxpayers in the overall program. Some of these things, you know, sort of when we would, hopefully we will turn this into a program. I think it will be more institutionalized with um, with sort of specific, here's, here's the criteria. I think just speaking um, sort of more from a, from a behavioral aspect, I think the tax administration that is meant to be the lead tax administration needs to feel comfortable with that taxpayer to take them into the group to filter questions to to do all of that and you know sort of there could be i don't know a particular compliance history of a particular taxpayer in that 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 they feel like at this stage where we are right now it may not be an appropriate taxpayer it may also be that the resources which are also required from tax administration they might say well look i can only take x number of taxpayers i already have x number of taxpayers so there may be some of these but maybe mark is there no no i i think i think you and you mentioned the self-assessment template earlier is that going to be available to multinationals regardless of their participation in the icap is that another sort of tool that they're going to be able to sort of look at their own organization through the lens of how tax administrators might be seeing them uh, I can try. Yeah, go. Yes, go, Mark. Sorry. The risk assessment template. We're still in the process of developing it, and I think we need to understand more clearly exactly what that will look like and how it will be used. But within the work that we're conducting more broadly within the form and tax administration and the development of tools to provide greater clarity um, or greater certainty, rather for. MNEs, I think that something that allows a greater level of transparency for an MNE about how their CBC report will be um, will be viewed or, or, or might be read by tax administrations uh, will certainly be beneficial. And I would hope that either the version that is used in ICAP 
or perhaps because it would be something that would be used by an ME outside of the ICAP conversation. It may be something which is more stripped down and, and simplified, uh, but we would certainly hope to explore to, to make something like that available in the future. Um, but as I say, we're still in the development stage. Well, I, I think this is fantastic. I mean, based on everything that both of you had indicated about the ICAP program, I see this being, you know, an opportunity to create and develop more trust between tax administrator and taxpayer. I think it's it's a it's a forum to hopefully minimize the amount of disputes between different contract countries, especially in situations where a multinational operates in, in, you know, in many countries on a global basis, right? Um, and, and I think having this open and transparent line of visibility into the tax administrator's thought processes and, you know, potential areas of risk and concern is going to create a, an environment of Future tax certainty, perhaps, maybe not absolute, but at least comfort based on what we've talked about today. So thank you both so much. I, I really appreciate it. This is great. I, I think you're I, I love this ICAP program. I, I think seriously, where do I sign up? Right. <laughs> I, I, mean, I think we're 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 also like I think that is the direction of travel that we must go. We hear that from businesses. We also hear it from tax administration. There will be up and downs and, you know, sort of we need to work this out. It has to take the right culture on tax administration. It's a risk assessment program. It's not an audit. Yeah. You know, you need to cut down. So there's a lot of things that we need to work on. But in terms of travel, I think it's it's important. Maybe just two brief points that taxpayers have also mentioned to us. Some of the taxpayers that have been in ICAP are actually communicating about the fact also to countries that are not in ICAP. And that's potentially a benefit. You know, some of the most sophisticated tax administrations have looked at this and they're mm -hmm. fine with this. So if I'm running the same structure, you know, that, that gives them some comfort, which I think is also benefited. And even if you turn it around, you know, in this post-BEPS environment, it's sometimes not that easy for a tax administration that wants to give certainty to give certainty because it's seen as like a sweetheart deal. And, right. and the multilateral framework kind of removes that suspicion. Because if you have 10 countries that at the same time, including, you know, Germans and Canadians, then, then clearly that's not a sweetheart deal because it's not just one tax administration talking to its multinational. It's a whole host of different tax administration looking at the same information at the same time, which also yeah. gives countries comfort in this environment that they can be in it. Yeah, I agree. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, Matt, it's time for your questions. Matt has a, yes. a round of quick fire questions for you guys. Yes. Uh, and I want to thank our guests for that thought provoking discussion. It really makes you wonder, doesn't it? Now, it's time for my favorite part of the show. What we want to know, we're going to put Ahim in the hot seat for a lightning round of questions. Are you ready, Ahim? <laughs> excellent, excellent. If your colleagues were to describe you in three words, what would they be? Wow. Um, wow would not be the word. Uh, sorry, no. Um, hopefully driven, um, uh, driven, uh, focused on results, um, and understanding of countries' concerns. I like it, yes. And given the world today, which is more important, being hardworking or being intelligent? Intelligent. And what's the most important quality attribute needed to work at the OC OECD, in your view? To listen. Very, very valuable skill everywhere. But yes, yes, I understand why. Uh, how do you cope with stressful moments at work? I don't. 
<laughs> that that makes two of us. Two of us. <laughs> Sit in my car and cry. Anyway, um, what's the best career advice you've ever received? Um, don't listen to what the person is telling you. Listen to what he actually wants you to do. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And uh, well, I think I think that wraps us up for today. I want to thank you both. Well, that's our show for you today. While tax certainty may be ambiguous, it certainly gives you something to think about. Bump, bump, bump. I'm sorry, I had to. This podcast was hosted, edited, engineered, and given very obnoxious mouth soundtracks by none other than yours truly, Matthew DeMello. Executive producer Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom writes our scripts. If you like discussions about interesting transfer pricing topics like this, why not sign up for more? Subscribe to The Fiona Show on iTunes or Spotify, and we'll give you something to think about every week. Until next time, may your transfer pricing transactions be well. I'm going with super predictable. <laughs> <laughs>